0: Hey, good morning, Arcadia. How are you? Not good, apparently. Hey, what? Yeah, apparently. Oh, really? Better? Yeah, all right. So. so we'll just have this awkward pause while I, you know. I know, I know. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, Cody's my handler now. He didn't realize that was part of his job description. So we're glad you're here this morning. Um, I will say I loved cody's prayer this morning because I do look forward to that day so much uh, When um, the lion and the lamb lay down and really anybody can go and play around a viper and not have to worry about it That's going to be awesome, you know And it's a perfect prayer for today because we're talking about uh, brokenness Um, If if and by the way, we we live in such a transient culture that i'm guessing that maybe half of you that are here this morning were not here last week So I need to tell you that we started a new series last week. We uh, Arcadia the only congregation doing this because of our property situation. We are interrupting our series uh, in the book of Mark for three weeks uh, to uh, do our faithful presence series about uh, moving into this new property, which by the way, are the screens not working now? Is that what's going on? Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. I'm just not used to seeing them off. There we go. There's the property we're moving into, although it's not going to quite look like that when we're done with it, but we are moving in there. I think we're about... Um, that's at 3330 East Camelback Road, uh, Biltmore Bible Church. Uh, So essentially 32nd Street in Camelback, if you can believe that God did that for us. It's just an amazing thing. Um, About 18 months ago, the elders actually laughed about the possibility of finding property in that that intersection area. (laughs) And God said, ha, ha, ha. You know, so... Anyway, really, really interesting. By the way, um, I've been amazed at how many people have walked up to tell me and remind me that um, this is certainly ordained by God, that we would be moving there, because Matt's Big Breakfast is apparently moving in at 32nd Street in Camelback, so. That will be our overflow area. We're going to put a big screen in there, and if we have an overflow, we'll just have people go down to Matt's, or most of you will just go to Matt's in the first place. I know, so. That's pretty exciting. Anyway, we're in our second week. If you were not here last week, we would really encourage you to go online and and listen to the podcast and and listen to what we're doing. We're talking about um, moving in, uh, planting roots. We've had an anchor in Arcadia, but you can always pull up anchor anytime you want and leave. We're actually going to plant permanent roots now and establish a faithful presence after five and a half years in the Arcadia area, which is very exciting. Uh, that God is allowing us to do this. We think we're about 10 days away from closing escrow on the property. Our phase one study apparently is going very, very well according to what Neil says, so we're excited about that. Um, it's this whole idea of, of uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of, of uh, um, well, really uh, sort of a paraphrase of John one fourteen that the word became flesh. He put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood and we're finally doing that in a permanent uh, way which we're excited about. Last week we talked about how in Arcadia we see God's goodness. Uh, The created order is still around us. We can still see that. We talked a lot about that, did Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Today we're going to talk about how uh, in Genesis 3, which David just read for us, uh, uh, it is now broken, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today, but how the church is Uh, the mechanism that God has decided to use in order to... um, God is the one who redeems the brokenness, but the church is what he's going to use. The bride of Christ is what he is using and what he's going to use. And so we're going to talk about the brokenness today. And then uh, uh, next week we'll wrap up by talking about uh, the necessity of, of being faithful to be sent into our community and now doing it from a place where we have a permanent faithful presence and have established actual roots. Um, just to reiterate a little bit last week and to add a little bit, uh, and again, I've already mentioned this, but we have to understand that the local church this is how important the local church is. The local church is God's hope and vision embodied in His people. That's what we are. And, and, and uh, as such, uh, we are being used by God. Um, Yesterday my father who's 94 years old and this is not was not surprising given the last three weeks My father's 94 years old. He passed away at 345 in the afternoon Many of you knew that and I appreciate your prayers and your texts and and shout outs and everything Um, it was like I said not surprising the last three weeks We've just kind of watched as finally his uh, body is shut down How many of you uh, remember when he was still able to come to church and would sit right back? Yeah, a number of you. Yeah um so, uh Anyway, he, he went out exactly the way he has said for decades, that he wanted to go out. It was really actually a beautiful thing. Uh, he had said for decades, I, I, I wanna be at 369 when I die. That's the address of my parents' house, 369 East Catalina. I wanna be at 369 when I die, and I wanna be surrounded by my five children, which was a miracle in and of itself because one of my sisters um, lives in South Africa, and she was here. Uh, and I want my wife, Grace, to be there too. So we were all there uh, when, when he uh, passed. It was, it was a, a, you know, a hard but really beautiful moment. But um, really the best part of it is that he's with Jesus now and it's because of the local church. It's because of the local church. Ten years ago, he came to faith in Christ. God saved him. Um, and, and this is what's so beautiful about that. God uses an imperfect but relentless church and God is perfect and relentless and he works through that imperfect but relentless church to be able to do that. My, God, my, my father is just one example of that, of that happening through the local church. It wasn't my preaching. I know some of you that would be like, wow, you didn't get saved under your preaching. It wasn't my preaching. Uh, it, was, it was just an amazing work of God through the local church and so that, that's why the church is important. It's, it's God's vision and hope embodied in his people. And the local church has a, has a great call on its life and, and any number of calls on its life, but perhaps the most important is that we would be a faithful present, lo, presence locally in its, in, in its community and with this property that God has faithfully given us. We, we need to steward it as such. Um, and, and I said last week we're not trying to take over the world, but we're just simply having, trying to have a faithful presence in Arcadia. And, and, and again, we, we want uh, a week long presence, not the weekly sort of fragmented presence that we 've kind of felt in um, our temporary situation here for the last uh, five years so uh, let 's let 's just move right into genesis three we 'll look at genesis three and we 'll look a little bit at uh, Acts chapter seventeen today and do some other things we 're going to have a little panel discussion again, like we did uh, last week, and then we 'll wrap things up. But I want to take us through Genesis three, obviously not as deep as we could go because i 'm going to kind of get through the entire uh, chapter, but uh, this is what happens immediately in the wake of those two verses that end chapter 2 of Genesis, which are just the the, the perfect uh, picture of paradise, where where it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and, not, and were not ashamed. You know, the, the picture of, of covenant, of consummation, of relationship, of trust, of intimacy, of authenticity, all of these things that we have had glimpses of in our fallen world but have never felt, have never seen or experienced perfectly, but our hearts know that we desperately want to experience this perfectly, and God's promise uh, is that we will, uh, at some point, experience this. But right in the wake of that, this is what happens. Now, the serpent was more crafty, crafty, Satan, the adversary, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he came to the woman and he said, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, God's di- but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Literally, that tree over, it's not even close to her. It's, it, you know, The only reason she's thinking about it now is because Satan has started this conversation with her. You, you need to remember that the vast majority of spiritual attacks are not full frontal attacks, but rather they're, they're, they're just Satan sidling up next to you and kind of licking your ears and, and just planting a little seed of doubt and asking some uh, questions. And she said, Can't eat of that tree, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's a, it's a shame that that she had either forgotten or never knew in the first place that she was already made in the image and likeness of God. That there's a lie right there of Satan, but it's a very subtle lie. He's, he's saying re- the real likeness of God is that yours isn't complete because there's something that he knows that you don't and don't you want to be equal to God and and remember Philippians 2 uh, in that beautiful hymn of Christ that Paul writes he he reminds us that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped if even Jesus didn't consider that why are we so interested in in trying to be equal or better than God Uh, it's amazing we live in a world that doesn't we don't think we're fallen, we kind of think God's fallen. That's, that's kind of the, the, the idea here. But in fact, we are the ones that are fallen and this is the story that, that helps us to understand that. So he knows that you, if you, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then verse six is a key verse because it contains what I call the triad of t- temptation. You're gonna, you, you, th- this is what gets you and I every single time these three things, the tri- this, this triad of temptation. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so it was pleasing to her flesh. It brought pleasure to your flesh. When it was also a delight to the eyes, you and I, man, that's that grass is always greener. No matter what we have, it's amazing. No matter what we have, we can always find something that we're sure is better than what we have. And so we covet and we're filled with greed. This is all a result of the fall. we're, We're dazzled by the glitzy. So the pleasures of the flesh, the delight of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. That's about pride. That's about pride. So pride gets us too. We want to be superior to everybody else, including God. That's what that is about. And, and it's funny because towards the very end of the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, uh, John has this passage in, in mind when he writes to uh, his people, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world, but if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, the love of God is not him, in him or her. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's Genesis, are not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So that's the redemption we have, and, it's, and it's, that's just John calling the world what it is. You know, it's It's fallen. So there's the the trinity the triad of temptation, which gets the woman. And so she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband and who was with her, and he ate. So the first sin was rebellion against what God had asked, and he'd only asked one thing: don't touch that one tree. There's about a million others that you can touch. Just don't don't eat of the fruit of that one tree. Verse 7, and the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. What is the first reaction to sin? hiddenness, hiddenness. Now we're hidden. We're all hidden. We're all hiding stuff from each other. And we're all pretty good at it, but we're not good at it with God. He knows it all, but we're good at it with, with each other. And by the way, my parents, um, for about 40 years, they, uh, some of you know this, they had, a, they had a big lush fig tree in the backyard. And, and, um, and if you've ever uh, actually walked up to a very, the fig, fig trees at their prime, they have these very large leaves. But if you ever walked up and felt one of these leaves, it's awful. It's worse than sandpaper. So how would you like this constant reminder of your sin? That your, this is what it means, loincloth, your genitals are covered with sandpaper. (laughs) You know, if people love irony, all you got to do is open the Bible, man. Isn't that right? Good grief. So here they are with these, walking around with these fig leaves going, wow, this isn't very good. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Uh, the, the, the scholars will tell you that the way this is in the Hebrew, uh, that um, that this is an indication that every day this was kind of the sort of the pattern. This was the fellowship of God with his with his people. Uh, so they hid themselves. The first time this ever happened, the Lord God called to the man and said, "Where are you?" Now, just for clarification's sake, uh, God is not walking into the garden going. Wow, they are so clever. I have no idea where they are. This is not a geographical question. You get what I'm saying? Okay, God asks us questions all the time that are way deeper than they sound. And we need to listen very, very closely. So he says, uh, uh, he says uh, where are you? And he said, the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you are naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, classic verse, okay. The man said, the woman, sorry, the woman you gave me. The woman you gave me. Now, let me tell you something. This is a metaphor right here for how you and I walk around in life when it comes to sin. Right? Wouldn't it be cool if, in all honesty, we could go downtown Phoenix and just walk and not the downtown phoenix is any place but we could go to scottsdale. In fact, let's go let's go to scottsdale and they're all walking around like this, okay? Cuz this is what this is what we're really thinking. I am a victim and everyone else including God is a villain. This is the result of fallenness. So if you're looking for those V words, we're 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 the villains actually. We're not the victims, okay? And so then the Lord said to the woman What is this you've done? And of course, she blames somebody else. A serpent deceived me and I ate. So um, you have rebellion as the first sin and then blame shifting as the second sin. Isn't that what we do? It's exactly, this is the perfect pattern of, of what we do. So hiddenness, rebellion, blame shifting, brokenness. And now we live in this world of constant spiritual war, of idols and sin, just constantly. And all of our relationships are now broken, every one of them. Our relationship with God has been broken and is broken our relationship with each other has been broken and is broken our rela- and you're going to see this in the curses that God gives us our, our relationship with ourself is broken you've already seen that with the hiddenness our relationship with ourself is broken we don't even understand ourselves Je- Jeremiah says in chapter 17 the heart is wicked and deceptive above all things our heart who can understand it we can't even understand ourselves we don't even know why we do the things we do that's Paul in Romans chapter 7 you know and certainly our relationship with God's creation is broken. With what we do with what, we, what he has so generously uh, given us. And look at these curses, you know. He says to the servant, because you've done this curse to you above all the livestock, you're going to go on your belly, you're going to eat dust all the days of your life. And then verse 15, a beautiful verse. Right away, right away, God says, but don't worry, I got your back. This is the Proto-Evangelion, I believe it's called. The first gospel message seen in the bible he's already telling us i got this i got your back the messiah is coming he says i'll put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and he shall bruise your heel that's a reference to what's going to happen with jesus it's amazing he's already got this figured out so there's hope even in the midst of this brokenness that's that's the beauty of of our god that we serve and who loves us But look at the curse on the woman, uh, so representative of of garbage that we have to live with today. He says, uh, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing and in pain you shall bring forth your children. I have in the past flippantly, admittedly, flippantly said that, you know, if it weren't for Genesis 3, we wouldn't need morphine or epidurals or natural childbirth or breathing lessons or anything when it comes to childbirth. Um, by the way, Redemption Arcadia had two babies this weekend, if you can believe that. The Drakenbergs and the Vaccaros, we are so good at that. Amen? I mean, come on, we're really good at this. Awkward silence. Okay, anyway, this pain and childbearing goes way beyond just labor, okay? Those of you that have children, like Jackie and I do, you know that the pain will last the rest of your life. Not not that it isn't wonderful to have children. It's the most wonderful thing that God has given us, I believe. Um, It's it's the greatest joy to have our two daughters, but the worst pain that Jackie and I ever feel in our life is always related to them. It's been said that once you have children, you wear your heart on the outside of your body for the rest of your life, and I can tell you it's true. My mom, who's in uh, 90 years old, severe uh, stage of dementia, uh, of, of Alzheimer's, Okay, I'm 56 years old. She still is more worried about me than anything else. She's still wearing her heart on the outside of her body at 90 and in the midst of Alzheimer's. The pain of childbearing is that living in a fallen world, you're worried about your kids all the time. And then then let me take it a step further. The pain in childbearing also involves uh, women who, and there's a lot of them, women who cannot have children or women who miscarry. There's tremendous pain there as well. The pain in childbearing is for people who don't even have children as well. This is this is a massive thing. This is, a, but this is symbolic of the, of the of the brokenness of our relationships with everything. And, and then and then he says, oh, and by the way, your desire is going to be for your husband, and he's going to rule over you. Okay you understand that before the fall there was that perfect complementary relationship where there was none of that was even a concern but now her desire is going to be for her husband not for his bod understand this goes way deeper than that this is that her desire is going to be for the power that she perceives that he has and he's going to exercise his power to rule over her this is why the gospel is so important in a gospel-centered marriage that's redeemed and you work towards, towards again that perfect complementary relationship. We don't exercise it perfectly, but that's, that's the idea of redemption. That's, we're trying to get back to Genesis 2, and 25. And then to Adam, he said, because this has happened, blah, blah, blah. It, you, work is now going to become toilsome. Work is now going to be hard. Work is now going to have to be regulated by the government. Work is going to have rules and it's going to suck. That's my paraphrase of what happens there. I know Genesis, so three, I could just paraphrase the whole thing for you, you know? It's going to be really, really bad. And so, this generosity that we have under created order, remember we talked about that? God created us and was generous to us, and therefore we are beneficiaries and we become benefactors. That's the idea. We're blessed to be a blessing. That generosity that we had in the created order now becomes greed. And, and, it's very reasonable. It's not an excuse, but it's very reasonable for us to look at what we do. We worked hard for what we get. And so, we don't want to give it away. We don't want to be lavish with it. We don't want to be generous with it. And it doesn't matter if you make 30000 a year or 300000 a year. I worked hard for that. I don't want to really give it away. I don't want to be generous. I don't want to be lavish. You know what? We have all become, as a result of the fall, hoarders. And not just of money, but of everything. Seriously, ask yourself this question later this afternoon. What are you hoarding? Because we're all hoarders of something. And different seasons of life, you're going to hoard different things. By the way, we're all hoarders, just not all of us are going to be on TV for it. Okay, But we're all hoarders of something. You know what I hoard? I hoard angst. But I also hoard other stuff depending on my season of life again. I really have trouble finding uh, green tea infused with mint. And so when I find it in a store, I'm like getting three and four shopping carts I'm hoarding it. And then I won't drink it even though I've got 69 of them in the refrigerator. I won't drink it because, oh no, I only have 68. How much longer can that last? <laughs> this is the curse of sin, man. This is how broken we are. All of these things are broken. You know, God then decides, all right, you're out of the Garden of Eden and He puts guards there, you know, with flames and stuff. It's ugly. It's ugly. What else is broken? Well, certainly sex is broken. We know that. Intimacy is lost and so now we strive for intimacy in other ways and generally it's through um, a misappropriation of the created order when it comes to sex. That's what we're doing. Everything about the created order is now broken. And maybe worst of all, wisdom and understanding is broken. We are now the fools that the book of Proverbs talks about. Nothing ever works out the way we fantasize. Have you... Have you looked? Have you considered that? Um, Paul was an expert on this. Let me shift gears now and go to Acts chapter 17 and read this. He's he's uh, coming into the city of Athens, and he's been wanting. He's on his second missionary journey. He's wanting to plant churches, and he's coming in there. And and uh, so, starting in 16, it says, "Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens." His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. See, what happens to the fallen human, which we're all fallen, is that we know that we we have to worship something. We're going to serve something. And we know that there is a God, but we don't like the God, the one true God. And so what we do is we create other gods, and they're called idols. They're false gods or idols. And Athens was filled with them. There were 30,000 different monuments to the various gods in the city of Athens. 30,000. And then they hadn't covered them all, and so they had one that was to the unknown God just to make sure they got everybody covered. Isn't that fascinating? What the fallen human heart will do, you know? So he was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked because the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day, the Areopagus. Uh, with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems like a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him into the Gopagus and, Gopagus and uh, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish we... Uh, know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there could spend their, uh, would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Doesn't that sound like the 21st century? Just We just want to have our ears tickled by something new, some new worldview, some new philosophy, some new existential idea, whatever it is. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Gopagus, uh Gopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along Uh, and observed the objects of your worship I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God what therefore you worship is unknown this I proclaim to you that's the church people come to church reluctantly who are not believers uh, because they know that there's something something even if it's just a friend that's bothering them to come to church And, and what we do is we proclaim what is unknown but what we know but he talks about idols. So what is an idol? An idol is something that we worship. We're all worshipers. We're all slaves. We're going to be slaves at something. And I know some of you say, not me, man. I'm my own person. I, I, I am only a slave to myself. Well, just let me remind you that you are a horrible master. And there is no slave in the world that would want to be a slave to you as a master. I don't, I don't want myself to be my master. I can guarantee you that. And you don't want me to be your master. There's one true God manifest through Jesus Christ but we worship stuff we're all slaves it's something that's an idol is something that's elevated above God in importance it's worshiped instead of God and we have funny ways of worshiping them we don't it's well I'm not in a church worshiping these things well you don't have to necessarily be but because we worship in whatever we devote our time energy effort and money to that's what we're worshiping Idols get in the way of all relationships, as a matter of fact. It's not just between us and God, but it breaks our relationships horizontally as well. Idols will do that. It's the idea that fulfillment and meaning comes from something other than God, which we do all the time. The use of people and things to attempt to accomplish what only God can do. And usually uh, what's interesting is that these are not bad things, they're good things that are just taken too far. One theologian says it, this way, says it this way, an idol is a good thing made into a God thing, which then makes it a bad thing. Uh, we tend to love things and use people, but yet God calls us to love God and love others and then steward things to His purpose and to His glory. And let me just read you some New Testament, um, admittedly only New Testament at this time, um, verses on idolatry. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. I won't have these on the screen. I'm just going to kind of read them to you rapid fire. By the way, this is the one verse I'll read where it would be helpful if you went this afternoon and read the whole context. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. But verse 14, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Just, just run from anything that you've made an idol. You know. One of great, Jackie's greatest and most frustrating ways that she shows her love for me is when she tells me that there's an idol in my life and I need to flee from it. But that's her expressing love to me. Most of us think, ah, that's just agitating. No, that's her loving me. It might be a little agitating, but that's her expressing her love to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. I love this. Mute idols, however you were led. You know what the problem with our God is? Is that He actually speaks to us through His Word and through prayer and through His people, He speaks to us all the time and that's what we don't like about Him because He's got something to say in our life. What we want is a God who's got nothing to say and never talks back to us. We want to mute God. Paul captures this perfectly. Ephesians 5.5 Few 5. may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Peter gets in on the act as well. First Peter chapter four verse three: For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And John gets in on the act too. 1 John five twenty one: Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the way he ends his letter. Little children, keep yourself from idols. We we uh, we talk about what our idols are in particular in Arcadia. I want to run through this as, uh, and just give you some ideas. obviously we can 't go deep on any of these, but give you some ideas. Uh, the assumption is is that wealth and sex are idols uh, throughout all cultures right now. Uh, so i won 't even go into those, but in particular, what is what is so fanciful and and um, hip right now, especially in in our area, uh, these are the things that we we uh, we run into and and Mark Sayers. I've I've drawn a lot from Mark Sayers and his writings, from James Davidson Hunter and his writings, from J.R. Vassar, his preaching and writings, from Wendy Kane. Here's 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 an idol that we have: irony and contrarianism. We idolize that. We do. I, boy, he got uncomfortable really fast. Isn't that something? Wendy Kane says this, social media has created a culture where important things get little attention and superfluous things get mega attention. J.R. Vassar says it like this, we live in an irony-dominated culture where now mountains of time are spent on things that don't even deserve a first look. By the way, who is the king of irony? It's not a trick question. Jesus. The first will be last. That's kind of contrarian. It's awfully ironic that Jesus made himself unclean so that you and I would be clean. He's the king of irony. You're looking for irony and contrarianism? Come follow Jesus. Coolness. Yeah, probably knew I'd go there because I'm so uncool. Coolness. Uh, James Davidson Hunter has has re-termed this, though, so that we can actually talk about it Uh, without riling people too much. He calls it social capital. How's your social capital? Do you eat the right foods? Do you have the right clothes? Do you hang out with the right people? Do you say the right things? Do you have the right job? Are you involved in the right causes? Do you have social capital? Are you cool? Jesus' social capital, do you know what His social capital was? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's how cool he is. Causes. That's an idol. And, and this is a hard one because most causes are actually really good and really important and we need them. The problem comes when we elevate them to God-like status and we serve them religiously. And it happens with alarming frequency. People get behind the cause as a way to improve their reputation, their social capital, their relevancy, their status. And they aren't truly invested actually in the cause. It's only what the cause can do for them. It's the person who talks about the cause non-stop but hardly ever actually works in the cause. It's the person with the bumper sticker but never goes to the gatherings. You know what Jesus' cause was? He said, I have come that I might do the work of the Father. That was His cause. There's something called hyper-reality. hyper-reality. Mark Sayers writes about this. I, I highly recommend it. Hyper-reality is, quote, when fantasy and exaggeration are perceived as more real than what's true. That's the culture we live in, amen? With this digital media and social media and all that stuff. I remember Avatar, the movie. I could not believe the number of people on social media blogs and actually wrote got essays published in reputable uh, publications about how their life was empty because they could not go where the Avatar was. And I look at it, do you understand? That's not real. But that's what hyperreality does to us. And the problem with hyperreality is it creates this reality that we all want, but we can't have, and so we've become more frustrated and depressed than we've ever been. Hyperreality, Sayers goes on to say, is the way that our media-drenched culture creates false realities or realities that seem even better than the real thing. In other words, what isn't real is what we want. It's the photoshopped model who doesn't actually look like that and never could look like that outside that sort of photo shoot. It's the picture of the food, but never how it actually comes out of the kitchen. Amen? We idolize education. Education is not a bad thing. By the way, I'm an educator. Education is great. I believe in education, but we idolize it. We idolize it to the point that people now have hundreds of thousands of student, dollars in student loans. Again, I, I get it. I understand that. That's, I, I'm not, that's an observation, not an evaluation or a judgment, but think about it, right? That's an idol for us. Clean eating. Clean, how, many pe- how many people are religiously serving the idea of clean eating now? I don't know if you remember this, but... In Mark chapter 7, Jesus pronounced that all foods were clean. That what goes into the body is not what makes a person unclean, but rather what comes out of your heart. And then radical individualism. Radical individualism. This This is the stance that says, This is who I am, and you now have to adapt to me. That's essentially what radical individualism is. I don't have to change. This is who I am. Suck it up and adapt to me. So everybody has to adapt to you. What about the person that says to you, you got to adapt to them? You see how this doesn't really work? J.R. Vassar writes this, genuine love is at odds with radical individualism because radical individualism does not allow for the speck of dust in your eye to be discussed, examined, cleansed, or rebuked. Even if you've taken the plank out of your own eye, you're not allowed this spec it's just who I am. Deal with it. You know, the most radically individualistic thing ever done was Jesus at the cross. And yet he did it also corporately for his people. The gospel has an answer for everything, I'm telling you. It's what we're looking for. And, and, and the church's job is to be the mechanism. Jesus' definition of wellness, says Luke Wright, Jesus' definition of wellness is when we let go of the things and idols in our life that we think have been bringing us rest and fulfillment. But in reality, those things only bring us frustration and depression. And we know from Ephesians 4 and Romans 7 that idols also just alienate and they enslave. And and, and here's the deal. God won't let this go because God always goes deep. Sin goes deeper than we ever thought it would. God also goes deeper than we were ever comfortable with. But He's going to go deep because He meddles and He wants us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that's the call of the church. And so because the world is broken, God calls His people into a faithful presence. We're going to bring out... uh, David is going to interview Stephen Allison. We'll do that for a couple minutes and then I'm going to wrap up and we'll... Take communion. Okay. All right.
1: Where is Steve? Oh. <laughs> oh, i had to leave that one there. Sorry. Oh, yeah. We gotta leave one for you, Gimpy. Yep. Poor Frank. So um, Frank's been talking about brokenness. Uh, I'm reminded of Romans 5.12. It says that death spread to all men because all men sinned. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of dialogue about that as, the, as we recognize as Christians that brokenness and sin has spread everywhere. I wanted to kind of ask uh, Steve, and Allison, uh, Steve and Allison some questions. So, Allison, I'll start with you. Um, who are you? What do you do? And then where do you see brokenness and um, sin and, uh, and death? in the Arcadia area, particularly in family and relationship contexts.
2: So I'm Allison de and I live, I'm probably the happiest person that the church is moving because I live two blocks away from it. Uh, We (laughs) actually live in the home that my husband was born and raised in. He's a native of this area. Um, We've had a de here since, well, his parents went to ASU, unfortunately. And... um, (laughs) So I have been in the Arcadia area, in and out, for our whole married life. I've known him actually since junior high. Uh, I'm a mother, a wife. I also work a lot with the Somali refugees. I coordinate the tutoring, and I'm involved in our community planning. There's a, This area of Arcadia is actually called East Camelback Village, and I'm very involved in the community planning, so what kind of stuff comes in and, and that kind of thing. Um, so where I see brokenness probably the most is in my mirror every morning. I live in Arcadia and I'm a fallen human being. Um, but as far as families and relationships go, believe it or not, there's not a huge difference between the coffee shops I like to go to and the great places like last week, Aaron and Rachel talked about some of my favorites, the Henry, being at Union at the Biltmore, there's just so many great places. Um, but I also spend a lot of time at the Somali Refugee Center. And as you sit down and start interacting with people, everyone, has a longing inside of them, fervor, closeness, uh, relationship, and purpose. I see a distorted sexual ethic um, among people, just people want to feel like they're loved and they belong, but they pursue it in a lot of the wrong ways, myself included. I think probably the biggest area of brokenness I see though is just a natural division between people that are in Arcadia and then people that come through Arcadia. And that there's a feeling of, if you can just get to here, this is a safe place, and maybe there's no problems. There's problems. But um, when I talk to people that work, like, at the Henry or my coffee shop, they are coming in. And they say it's hard to really get to know people that live here. They almost feel invisible sometimes. And so that is an area of brokenness that I see we could really step up and step into, besides getting to eat great food. You get to meet some really wonderful people. And... um, and to show them that we also have a brokenness, but we have an answer to that.
1: Steve, tell us who you are, what you do, and then tell us where, thank you, Allison, tell us where you see brokenness in the professional world. Thanks, David. I'm Steve Wheeler. Uh, I have
3: lived, gone to school, married, raised a family, worked, and uh, served in the community in this general area since the 1950s. Uh, I'm married, have four children, 13 grandchildren. I've had a professional career as a lawyer, as an executive in the energy industry, and I'm now chairman of a large hospital and healthcare system. And I'm on some boards that deal with education and biomedical research and the arts and the like. Uh, it, this is a tough question because I don't want to come along, come across as the village scold just because I've seen. Uh, instances of dysfunction and brokenness, and I'm going to relate my my answer primarily in the professional field in the marketplace, uh, and primarily with with guys, uh, al- although uh, it applies to the gals as much as well. The question I've seen is the brokenness and the dysfunction. I would characterize more as disconnected. I see such a huge disconnection between faith in the marketplace at work. I see it uh, between our our faith and family, and I see it between our faith and our community, and by that I mean when I'm in the marketplace, I know there are believers out there, but you'd be hard-pressed to, to see them in any distinctive way uh, that people would know about them. Uh, they view work, uh, as do uh, most of the populace, as a burden, not a blessing. Frank talked about how God made work more difficult. Uh, but originally, work, uh, as we understood biblically, was to be a steward of what God has given us and to take joy in, in working that creation to draw closer to him. Now people see work as a means to get to uh, whatever desired end they want to have. And you don't see the application of, of Christian principles in business as much as you should. Tom Schrader tells a great story. Uh, he was in the real estate business, and he would do deals all the time, and he would say he got some of the worst workings over, by people who would profess to be Christians. And there was one particular deal that was difficult for him, and he felt like he really got screwed by the guy, and he went in after the deal and said, I thought you were a Christian. Uh, How did you treat me? Why did you treat me that way? And he said, well, I am, but I never let it get in the way of my work. And that sort of, in one way, sort of capsulizes some of the issues we see. And you see it in the family as well. I know so many guys who have abdicated their role as biblical leaders uh, in their family, as husbands and as fathers. Uh, either because they don't think it's important or because they think they're working to provide materially for their family, covers uh, their dereliction of duty from a family standpoint. And I also see it in the community as well. We don't see people that are as engaged in the community to help in the community, to attend the church, or to just reach out and have a community themselves on a micro level where they can be uh, held accountable, where they can be supported, encouraged, and equipped they 're isolated they 're lovers of self, as we see in Second Timothy
1: Thanks, Steve. Wow. Allison. Um, back to you, what are maybe some areas of idolatry and brokenness that are pretty obvious in Arcadia, and then what are some areas that may be less obvious
2: um, well i would I was when I listened last week um, to what Aaron and Rachel said. I I saw in each of their positives really the huge negatives. Um, They talked about how influential this area is, whether it's in business or this is an area of great leisure. People love to come to our restaurants and hiking. Um, And then education. We have some really phenomenal schools here. But the negative side I see in it is those real good things start to become the main things and an end unto themselves. And so there, it's pretty easy to forget you're broken um, when you have manicured lawns everywhere, amazing food and all this beautiful stuff. And, and it's very easy to just turn in and be very insular. Um, the community closeness was mentioned and I do see that. I mean, I do love that this is an area where people ride bikes, we get out and walk. But it, you know, from where our church is gonna be to the Somali refugees where they live is less than three miles. And yet, it's very easy to purposely just stay north of Indian School and avoid these areas that are really our neighbors. Um, and so I see that definitely as an obvious, I mean, I'm sure you've all had that experience of going down 32nd Street. The difference between Camelback and Thomas is night and day. Um, so that, ignoring that. And there, there is a lot of diversity of culture, uh, which brings a lot of really interesting aspects to life here. But the obvious brokenness I see it is also a big division between cultures, and almost an us and them, an unspoken us and them mentality. And um, you know that said, instead of it being a mingling, it's kind of more there will be pockets and areas where different groups will be. Yeah, and that's,
1: and that's hard because we want, as the church, we we don't want it to be us and them. We want to reflect God's kingdom, which is. People from every every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that reconciliation is something that Christians long for. Um, we'll wrap up. Thank you, Allison. Steve, tell us a little bit about how do people that that you work with, or people in the work world in general, kind of navigate some of the brokenness. Um, you shared a little bit about Tom's story, but maybe other ways that you feel like are are helpful and unhelpful ways of navigating brokenness, idols, and sin.
3: Well. At least in the marketplace, uh, most of the people I come across with are, are very competitive, very type A folks who are in, in many sense uh, more concerned with activity than with eternal achievement. And so their way of dealing with, with issues, is assuming that it's brought to their attention, oftentimes you'll you'll see a progression. You'll either see outright denial that, that there's an issue that needs to be dealt with or you will see a justification or an excuse for the behavior, I'm a victim, or uh, circumstances demanded I do this or that, but not any personal responsibility. Then you'll see the I will ignore it uh, response, and I don't know if you've seen the the video. Uh, It's in a different context, but it's a picture of a lady that's got a nail in her head, and she's talking to her husband, and she keeps saying, oh, I've got this terrible pain, i got this terrible pain, and the husband, the poor guy, is trying to say, got a nail don't talk to me about that I've got this pain and she goes on and on and it's clear what the issue is but she's ignoring it completely it's it's a great video but then but then the other approach (laughs) that you see far more often is sort of a self-medicating I'm going to deal with the symptoms not the cure there'll be a problem uh, it'll be brought to their attention they'll own it but their response to it is not to get to the core issue which is oftentimes a heart issue and and an issue that requires them to turn to God but they'll look to whitewash it uh, either by doubling down on the behavior or by seeking to use the resources that so many people in Arcadia have, uh, just to sort of uh, paper over it. Uh, So you see band-aid approaches that never go to the real root cause of the issue, but just attempt to deal with the symptoms.
1: Steve, thanks. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you being here. Um, The good news, like Frank talked about, the Proto-Eongelion, the first gospel, is that God promises not to leave the state of the world in brokenness, but to fix it. And the way he does that is through his Messiah and through the people that follow the Messiah. so... We're going to pray and wrap up, and then Frank will will finish up. God, thank you that you promised to send Christ, that we can have assurance and trust that uh, you will one day set the world to right and make things as they should be through Jesus. We ask that you would come and do that quickly and that we'd be faithful in the meantime. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.
0: Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. Let me say this to wrap up, I think. The church is the cultural expert on sin. Yippee. (laughs) The reason we're the cultural expert on sin is because we have God's word. We have his wisdom. And so we're supposed to point out sin and help people understand it. I mean, there has to be bad news before there's good news. But here's here's the biggest part of this challenge, and this is what we're called to in this faithful presence. If we are experts on sin, if we're the experts on sin, then we should also be the experts on grace, mercy, redemption, restoration, and perseverance. We need to be experts in that area too. That's what God calls us to, and that's how He empowers us by the gospel. Let me pray, Cody and... Uh, The band will come up and we'll have our communion and uh, we'll wrap up the service. God, thank you very much for your word and its truth. God, I pray that uh, you would take our idols and help us to flee from them, but not just flee from them, but to turn to your good news, the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, coming and being made unclean that we might be clean. God, we thank you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.